uh, would you uh, open up your Bibles or look to the screen? We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. So Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a feast for his son and sent his son to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The word of God. <laughs> oh, is, this, is this working? Yeah. You guys join me uh, as we pray for preaching of God's word. Father God, I ask that you'd help all your people gathered here today, um, and even your people who are watching through a screen, um, to actually hear from you in your word. We don't just want to be taught information. We actually want to encounter you in your word. God, speak to us. I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit, help our hearts uh, to be attentive and receptive so that we might receive your word. Uh uh. It's all good. It's like the back. Oh. Sorry guys. Still not used to this. <laughs> um I want to start off with a question. Uh, who here has been seasick before? Who who's been seasick before? Um it's a terrible feeling, right? Uh it's one of the worst feelings in the world. That sensation of your stomach kind of tumbling uh, and churning. Nowadays, we've got tablets for this kind of thing, right? So you just pop a tablet, and generally you're pretty good. But 100 years ago, uh, they didn't have tablets like that, so they had to be very creative. 
uh, on the World War II era cruise liner called the RMS Queen Mary. The passengers would buy these expensive seats on board this cruise liner, but they'd start getting very sick. You know, seasickness kicks in. So in order to help the passengers who would get sick, uh, they had to come up with a solution. And the solution that they came up with was to tint the mirrors on the boat very subtly with a shade of pink. And the idea was that you know, you're on this boat, you're struggling, you start to get sick, uh, your stomach starts to turn, and you, you, know, you start turning that greenish-gray color. And then all of a sudden, you look in one of the mirrors, and what you see is not a greenish-gray person, but a healthy-skinned person. Right? The picture of health, and since you looked good, you feel good, and you're all better. That was the idea behind this, a bit of harmless self-deception. I'm not sure how well it worked. <laughs> I don't think it worked that well. But um, I think we like it just as human beings when people do that kind of thing for us. And what I mean by that is this. Uh, when people persuade us that we're well, that things are well, even when they're not really. So, you know, you might have uncertainties about next year. And someone says to you, everything's going to work out. Don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Uh, it feels good to be told that, right? Or when you're going through maybe some strains in a relationship, right? And someone says to you, don't, don't worry too much about it. It'll all be okay, right? That relationship will you know, work itself out. You guys will be able to handle it. That feels really good. But the problem is, it's not always true, is it? Like the reality is sometimes we don't handle the uncertainties of the future very well and things don't end very well. Things end in disaster sometimes. Things end in failure. Sometimes, despite our best efforts, relationships break down and they come to a painful end. And so sometimes it's better not to be so certain about what's going to happen tomorrow or next year or in the future. It's actually better to be a bit more sober-minded about these things, a bit more realistic. And the same concept, the same line of thinking applies to our ultimate future. I'll just ask you the question, how sure are you that it'll all turn out all right, not just maybe next year or tomorrow, but when you die, what would your answer be to that? I'd ask you, how sure are you that you know, you'll be in heaven? This parable today was told to people, some of whom were very, very sure that they would be in heaven, that everything would be okay uh, when they die. They weren't worried about it at all. It didn't make a, even the slightest dent in the way that they lived their life in the present. And what Jesus does for them today in this passage is what he wants to do for us. It's the opposite of this pink tinted mirror. And he's going to tell a story which is shocking to them. I think it'll be shocking to us because it pushes back against this false pink mirror confidence in the future that all of us love to hear, all of us love to be told that. And it'll lead us instead to a deeper, more sober and secure confidence in the future that is found in Jesus. But first, some context. Um, it's been a couple of weeks since we've 
than in Matthew. But if you remember, uh, just before this parable, there was this other parable that Jesus told about uh, these rebellious squatters, these tenants in the vineyard. Right, the landlord sends his servants to collect payment, right, to gather some fruit from his vineyard. And you know, they beat up his servants and kill them. Then he sends his son. They do the same. And can you see the similarities in this parable compared to, the, compared to that one? There's a son in this parable too. Right, in the last parable, he was sent, rejected and killed. This time, the son is the reason for this wedding feast. And there are servants being sent again. And they're rejected and killed again. And again, judgment follows. And again, this parable is being directed to the religious leaders of Jerusalem. But this parable is not saying exactly the same thing. See, in the parable of the rebellious squatter tenants in the vineyard, uh, the focus was on the fruit, right? Uh, The landlord was sending his servants to gather the fruit. And that's a picture of the godly life to which uh, God calls his people to. What God looks for in his people. A life of actual fruit, repentance and change. And if that's all there was to it, you'd be a bit hard-pressed to think about the Christian life. And it's all about godliness. And that's where this parable today acts as almost a corrective because at the heart of Christianity, what we're going to find out today is actually a generous God. That's who He is. At the heart of reality is a God who is abundantly generous. And it's not about what we give to God, but what God longs to give to us. And that's really the first surprise of this parable today, a generous king. So look at verse 4 with me, the description of this king. It says, again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything's ready, come to the wedding feast. This picture of an incredibly generous king, he loves his son, he loves his people, and like he spares no expense. It's this extravagant, lavish feast that he's laying upon them. And you've got to understand, this is very counterintuitive uh, to what the hearers at the time, these religious leaders, uh, had built up in their thinking. You know, they had persuaded themselves that heaven could be earned and not given. And that's how they were living their lives. Their attitude was, hey, I'm a pretty good asset to God. I know all about the law. I can teach people. I can guide them. I'm a pretty good asset to God. I've got a lot to give. That's why they felt so confident in heaven. I think for us, some of us might have that same attitude. Um, I, I definitely know I've had that before as a pastor. I've got a lot to give to God. I'm such an asset to God. But also, we can have uh, this other attitude that says, I've got nothing good to offer God. I'm useless to God. And perhaps you don't feel as confident in heaven. But the underlying motivation is exactly the same. At the heart of your life, it's not about what God longs to give to you. It's actually about what you give to God. What you can or what you can't. And Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is not like that. It's like a feast. Like a wedding banquet. And that means at the heart of reality is a God who one commentator describes as A God with wide arms. 
open-hearted hospitality. Not a grasping God who wants to get something from us. Uh, He's a giving God who longs to pour out upon us. And you don't have to bring a bottle to this feast. You don't have to bring anything. Everything's prepared. Everything's ready. Isn't that one of the best feelings in the world? Um, you know, when you are invited to someone's house for a feast and you're fed a delicious meal, you haven't done a single thing. It's one of the best feelings in the world. But even the best feasts and the best banquets that you and I could go to or have ever been invited to, they won't ever compare to the banquet that this king gives in honor of his son at this wedding feast. And this morning, I just want to ask you a simple question. I want to start off with this. Is your picture of God a giving God or is it a grasping God? Because for many of us, uh, the culture that we grow up in, it's one that is so fundamental about earning, right? Uh, Especially true of uh, Asian culture, growing up in that kind of air, the air that we breathe, it's all about you, know, you give and you get what you, know, you get what you put in. J.I. Packer, uh, in his book Knowing God, he says this. He says, grace is much talked about in our churches, and yet there do not seem to be many in our churches who actually believe in grace. Uh, they pay lip service to the idea of grace, but there they stop. You speak to them about the realities of grace. Uh, their attitude is one of blankness. I don't know about you, but those words make me feel a bit uncomfortable because they're way too close to the mark. I think this language of grace can become so overused at times that it stops meaning much to us anymore at a certain point. And deep in our hearts is this image of a God who is tight-fisted because that's been our experience of life. And the biblical idea of grace, this God who abundantly pours out upon us, who gives freely, that's really hard for us to believe. But this king is generous. He longs to satisfy the hunger of his people with a feast, not just with morsels and crumbs, but with an extravagant feast. I want to read to you from Isaiah 25 talks about the same God, talks about this feast. This is what it says. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he'll swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He'll swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. It's this image of the deepest hungers of the human heart being satisfied at this feast, at this marriage feast of Jesus Christ. And um, we all have hungers, don't we? Right? The hunger to, to love and to be loved. Like the hunger to have meaningful relationship and not be lonely. The hunger to matter. Like to live a life that counts in some lasting way. And this feast language is not just talking about having a good time. It's talking about the final satisfaction of the deepest hungers that we have, that every human heart has. 
And when the king says, everything is ready, come, it's a really surprising invitation. It's a pushback against you know, this mindset of earning that we all have. At the heart of all reality is a generous God who longs to pour out grace upon his people. He's a generous king. And really what that means for you and I this morning is that if you are in Christ, and even if you're not in Christ, there is grace for you. There is grace for you. Despite what you may think or feel or experience, there is an abundance of grace. The generosity of grace. The satisfaction of your deepest hungers that is for you from God. So that's the first surprise. A generous king. And if this first surprise tells us what God is like, the second surprise tells us uh, with, ruthless on, with, with ruthless honesty uh, the truth about you and me. Right? And it's this. Uh, a rejected king. A rejected king. So we see here that the king sends out an invitation to his subjects to come to this wedding feast. And surprisingly, surprisingly, everyone turns the king down. Verse 3 simply says, but they would not come. Uh, must be a sucky feeling right, to be rejected in that way. They reject his invitation. Um, and for you English nerds, I'm not sure how many of you there are here in this room today, but uh, this verb for they would not come, uh, it's what you call the imperfect tense. And what that just means is it's ongoing, right? It's an incomplete action. So it's not a once-off rejection. It's a persistent, continual, determined unwillingness to come. And it reveals two things to us. Number one, it re- reveals that this invitation is persistent. It's continual. It's patient. We see the patience of God here. But also it reveals to us that the rejection is the same. It's persistent. It's a continual. It happens in two ways, this rejection. Verse 5 says this, But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And these are the people who hear the good news and they simply shrug it off. Have you ever met anyone like that? Try to share the gospel with them? And it's not that they necessarily want to shut you up and they don't say stop talking to me about it. But um, they just don't care about what they're hearing. Life is too busy. Uh, Too much else is going on. This doesn't really matter. I don't know if you've ever heard this expression. Uh, These are people whose occupation has preoccupied their soul. But then in verse 6, it says, The rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And these are the people who are not just indifferent to the gospel, but they are outright hostile to the gospel. They get irritated if you start talking to them about Jesus, about Christianity. I don't know if you've ever experienced someone saying to you, don't talk to me about God. I don't want to hear about that. Right? And look at what happens in verse 7. In response, the king was angry. and He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And you might be thinking, well, that is a bit over the top. You know, I've rejected invitations before. I haven't been killed for it. Um, it's 
bit over the top. It's a bit extreme. What's happening here? This is not just a rejection of an invitation. This is a rejection of their king. Right? Their sovereign ruler. And whether it's expressed through indifference or hostility, you know, whether you're just preoccupied as a person or you're a persecutor of Christianity as a person, both attitudes have the same driving force. It's a deep unwillingness to have this king rule over me. It's a deep rejection of this king. And the historical word for that has always been treason. Have you heard of that term, treason? And the historical punishment for treason is death. Right? So this is not an over-the-top extreme response. It's a righteous response. And you and I would be in the firing line of that were it not for Jesus Christ. We would suffer death, eternal death. For the people here listening to Jesus, I want to remind you that this is, in this context, directed to them. These are the people who are so sure of their place in the kingdom of God, right? They were so sure of heaven. You know, when you go to a wedding, right, and you have uh, that kind of placard with all the names listed out, and you go over to your spot and you find your name card, really lovely name card set out for you. Uh, this is how that uh, the, these religious leaders were kind of thinking about it. They thought that their names were already down on the table at this feast. And so when Jesus is telling them this parable, it is shocking to them. And now he says to them, to their surprise, you have been invited, but you've persistently rejected the invitation, and there are consequences to that. And what this tells us is God is generous, yes. He's patient, but he is just. He will not be mocked. So far we've seen a generous king, a rejected king, and the final surprise that we see in this parable is this, a gracious king. So the king sends out his servants uh, to go and bring people into the feast. Verse 8 to 10, look at it with me. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to, to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. For the wedding hall was filled with guests. So these servants, they go out into the city and they go to what we call the dregs of society. Right? The leftovers. And they bring them in. And this is not good news for the hearers at the time. This is not good news for the Jewish leaders of the first century. Because Jesus is saying this kingdom of God, this heaven, it's, it's thrown wide open to who? Not to you guys, but to you and me. Um, it's not very flattering, but I don't think any of us here are Jewish by birth. We're all Gentiles. And this unflattering picture of us is that we are the anybody you can go and find out on the street. We're the dregs of the world. That's you and me. But God's grace has pursued us and brought us into this feast. That means God's grace, it's not just free and generous, but it's indiscriminate. God doesn't have favorites, despite what you might think. Maybe you look at other Christians and you think, oh man, God really, really loves that person. 
and use terms like God's favor. But God is indiscriminate in his grace. And there is in this king's heart a passionate longing to share his goodness with all who would seek after him. And I don't know about you, but there's not a single one of us here this morning who can say, well, God never invited me. Right? Well, God never invited me. He did. And he does. We may reject the invitation, but his grace is offered and offered and offered. Today, this morning, all you have to do is come to him in prayer to be willing to live not as your own king, but under his good kingship. What does that mean for you? I think it's going to mean some form of surrendering the very things that make you king over your life instead of him. Those very things that you don't want to surrender to God. So stop being the king or trying to be the king of your own life. Come in repentance and surrender to him as the king of your life. There is such a generosity of grace for you and for me. There's a satisfaction, there's a deep joy, a forgiveness, a new life that comes with repentance. So there we are, the wedding hall is filled with guests, with the dregs of society who have been brought in to the feast. It's a happy, contented scene. We can relax, right? It'd be nice to finish here, don't you think? But it doesn't finish here. And what do you make of verses 11 to 14? So in these final three verses, uh, in the second wave of guests, uh, we read about uh, this terrible scene uh, where the king finds uh, this guy, and he comes up to him and he says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He's got nothing to say. And then immediately he's bound and thrown out to the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Very, very sober kind of passage to end on. Um, so this second wave of guests, let's, let's have a think about this. They're being brought in. They don't really have time to go home and change. Right? It was already afternoon by the time that they'd been invited. They don't have time to clean themselves up or get out of their work clothes. They're just being brought in. Most of them would not have owned anything that was remotely suitable for a wedding garment of this stature. And it wasn't uncommon in those days for the king himself to supply those wedding garments to his guests. And so you have this one man sitting here in normal clothes. And it's not because he didn't have time. It's not because he didn't have a set of wedding garments of his own. It's because he has clearly refused the king's offer of a wedding garment. And so the king finds him and he says, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And notice what it says in the text. It says, and he was speechless. Why? When does a person become speechless? You know, Jesus is describing this parable and in this final scene, he's describing someone who has no excuse. You know, if this man could have genuinely said, well, you know, I mean, I didn't have time to go home and change, Your Majesty. 
he would have said it. Uh, if he had a reason that was, well, you know, I'm too poor to own a wedding garment, then he would have said it. Someone who is speechless is someone who has no excuse whatsoever. And he's stunned into silence. And we saw earlier uh, that indifference and hostility share the same heart. The heart of rejection, rejecting this king. But now we find someone who hasn't been indifferent to the invitation. They haven't been hostile to the invitation. They've actually accepted the invitation. He's part of what we would call the visible church. You know, maybe someone who's been baptized, someone who's grown up in the church, someone who calls himself a Christian. The king says, friend. And then one of the very uh, next words out of the king's mouth, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. Or yeah, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not normally something you'd say to someone after you call them friend. Friend? Okay, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. Why is Jesus call, uh, describing this king, calling this man a friend? Well, Jesus is showing us that there are some people who like to think of themselves as friends of his, who aren't, actually. Uh, you see this, we're going to see this uh, few chapters down later in Matthew 26, verse 50. Uh, you see Jesus use this term in real time. Uh, we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, a friend of Jesus comes to see him, a friend named Judas, uh, the one who was about to betray him and turn him over to be crucified. And he comes up to Jesus to plant a kiss on Jesus' cheek. And the first word out of Jesus' mouth is, friend, what are you doing? You see, that you can say that you are a friend of Jesus. I'm not talking about people who necessarily have you know, become indifferent to this invitation or have rejected this invitation with hostility. I'm saying that you can accept the invitation and the garment's been provided. But after all of that, after all of that, we can still reject this king. Because the one thing that's lacking is repentance. There will be no feast. There's no in-between. You're consigned to the same end as this man without the wedding garment. This is a tough passage to preach on. You know, it's not something I would have gone to first if I had a choice. But that's the reality of responding to this generous invitation. There's no in-between. And so I think the lesson for us is that you can accept the invitation. The garment has been provided. But after all of that, please do not lack in repentance. It doesn't matter if you are here every Sunday and you're part of the visible church. It doesn't matter if you go to CGs and you go through the motions. Without repentance, it doesn't matter. 
I'm not saying repentance is easy. None of us can change our hearts like that. I'm not just saying, hey, let's all go change overnight. But the Holy Spirit can do it. The Holy Spirit can make the unwilling willing. And as a start, how is the Spirit leading you today, this morning? How is the Spirit prompting you this morning to come to God in repentance? And the beautiful truth of the gospel is that if you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, you come to Him and you ask Him to forgive you, He will. There's no lag, there's no delay, there's no something more that you have to do. The beautiful truth of the Bible is that the blood of Jesus washes away all of our sins. And how I wish, and I'm sure how Jesus, even in his anger, longed for these Pharisees, these religious leaders, to just get that. It's not enough to accept the invitation. We need to live a life of repentance that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Saying that to the Pharisees just as surely as he's saying that to you and me today. The feast is spread, but you must repent to eat it. And there is grace when you do to come and be filled, to be satisfied, to know the joy of salvation that is unlike anything else. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, passages like this that are challenging, that shake us awake out of our comfort and our complacency, uh, that will rock us out of this pink-tinted certainty that everything's just going to be okay, that we can continue to live just as we are and everything's going to be okay. And I also thank you that there is grace in the gospel. I thank you that at the heart of reality is a God who is a generous God who longs to pour out upon his people mercy and grace and satisfaction. And I ask for all of us here today, uh, especially for those of us who are coming to a point where we're realizing that the way that we, we have been living, it, it's, not, it's not good enough. It's not satisfying. I pray that you would lead us by your kindness, by your generosity, by your grace, your repentance, so that we might experience the cleansing flow of Jesus' blood, that we might live as you want us to live, as you have ordained and intended for us to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need your help. We can't do it without you. Repentance is not easy. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit. All of us, help us. I ask that you would help us convict our hearts of our sins. Teach us to hate sin 
and to love the things that you love. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.